Once again, I would like to ask you to turn to the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. This morning, we will be completing this lengthy and powerful chapter in which we see Jesus giving an extended discourse concerning the bread of life, but really teaching us a great deal about salvation and what salvation means and how it comes to us and the work of God in our midst. Our text this morning is the very end of chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Hear now the very word of God. John 6 beginning at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would feed us from your word. That you would remind us that your word is life that we would seek after it with all of our hearts, and that in seeking it, we would find the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. What does success look like in the church? How do we know that the Lord is blessing our efforts? As Americans... We can be obsessed with success. And we assume we know what success looks like. It's bigger. It's better. And that's especially true here in Texas, right? But our text this morning shows us something different. Jesus has been preaching the gospel in this chapter, and an interesting thing happens. A large number of his disciples go away 
they leave. Jesus' message is not what they want to hear, so they grumble and they turn away. And here we get a lesson on what it means to truly follow Jesus. We get a warning not to make assumptions about Jesus. And we see Jesus' true followers recognizing him for who he is. In our text this morning, we see the words of Jesus and we see two perspectives on those words. They're the same words heard by two different groups of people who come to two very different conclusions. And that's what I'd like us to look at this morning. One group hears Jesus' words and they are words that are hard to bear. They find it difficult to hear them. Another group hears these same words and they are words of life. They're words of hope and salvation. Words that are hard to bear. Words of life. Well, let's begin then by remembering to whom Jesus is speaking. Verse 60 tells us that many of his disciples heard this. And if we're honest, when we hear the word disciples in the context of a gospel, our mind goes immediately to the twelve. The twelve disciples of Jesus who will later become apostles. And that's who we think Jesus is speaking to. Because so often, that group of twelve are the disciples that Jesus is teaching. But John has others in mind here as well. Now remember that there were Jews in the synagogue who disputed what Jesus said and were shocked by what he said. But there is also this crowd, a crowd that followed Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. They had seen Jesus perform the miracle of feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. They had actually eaten the food and they'd been blessed by it. And that had caused them to track Jesus down after he left. They followed him around the Sea of Galilee to hear his teaching, and they likely went into the synagogue itself. We might say here that Jesus' ministry is starting to catch on. Jesus' poll numbers are up. His attendance numbers are up. All of the status that we would expect is going forward. The twelve must have been very excited to see this. The crowds are swelling. Jesus' influence is growing. The twelve might have even been planning the next steps that they would take. Soon, from their perspective, Jesus would be more influential than both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's just a matter of time before he'll confront the Romans themselves. Nothing can stop Jesus at this point. But Jesus has actually already done something that changes everything. The crowd wanted Jesus to pander to them, to serve them. Jesus knew this. He actually told them so. You'll recall in verse 26 of this chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Jesus is saying, you're following me around not because you know that I am God, not because you want to hear my teaching, but because you think I'm a giant vending machine, that I can meet all of your needs. That's why you are following me. Well, they wanted, we remember, to make Jesus a king. But they wanted to make him their kind of king. A king that would give them what they wanted. And so Jesus responded by teaching in a way that they did not expect. Now, we might expect that since this crowd were fans of Jesus, that Jesus would encourage their fandom. He would tell them what they wanted to hear so that they would stay connected to him, so that they would hang on his every word, so that they would bring other fans in. That's what we'd expect. That's what would happen in the modern world. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He says things that are hard. Hard to understand. Hard to believe. Hard to take. And so this crowd of disciples goes from enthusiasm to grumbling very quickly. John tells us that Jesus' disciples grumbled. Now, grumbled in Greek is a great word. Even the sound of it gives you a sense of what's going on. The Greek word for to grumble is gongizo. It sounds like, what are you doing? It just sounds like it. It's that voice. It's that echo. And I think it's intentional why that's the case. So John wants us to feel what's going on here. The crowd is around Jesus and they're mumbling and they're complaining. We might even understand that they're whining a bit. I think there's probably a few parents in the room that know a little bit about what whining sounds like. That's what's going on here. Jesus isn't doing what they want, how they want, when they want. And they've got a complaint, but they don't want to bring it right to Jesus. They just want to grumble a bit and complain. Now, John wants us to feel what's going on here. So actually, half of all of the uses of this word to grumble in the New Testament occur right here in this chapter. He wants you to feel the grumbling. Grumbling usually is something that comes from the unbelieving enemies of God. The Pharisees are the ones who grumble. Those who died and were destroyed in the wilderness were the ones who grumble. And and Jesus knows this. He, He knows this, and that's important. He's speaking to them knowing that they're already drifting away. They already have one foot on the road. And so in verse 61 we read that Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, verse 60 tells us that part of the reason they were grumbling and complaining is that Jesus gave them a hard saying. Now, Hard here, the meaning, this is not hard like calculus is hard. Don't ask me to do any higher level math. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying it's difficult. The word here for hard means harsh or offensive. It's used, for example, in the parable in Matthew 25 of the harsh 
master. It's an adjective to describe the harsh things, Jude says, that ungodly sinners say about God. So, this is not something they're just having difficulty understanding. And furthermore, they say, who can, that is, who is able, who has the ability to listen to it? The idea is that they don't want to listen. Not that they're eager, but can't understand. And, and this is important for us to see. Do you notice the one thing that they never do in this passage? They never ask for a clarification. They never ask for an explanation. It's not that they just don't understand and if that could possibly be figured out, everything will be fine. This is important for you and me because I think sometimes we fall prey to the way of thinking that says, if we could just perfectly explain the gospel, everyone would come to Jesus. If we just could explain the gospel in a way that everyone could understand, if we were just as clear as we could possibly be, as winsome as we could possibly be, as gracious as we could possibly be, then no one would stay away from Jesus. But this passage teaches us something different. They don't ask for any explanation. Instead, they take offense at what Jesus has said. Jesus tells us this in verse 61. He says, do you take offense? And the Greek word behind this is a word that you will understand. It is the word skandalizo. And it will be no surprise to you that we get our word scandal directly from this. So it's important. Jesus is saying, are you scandalized by what I'm teaching? Are you offended and embarrassed by what I'm teaching? You see, they wanted to follow to Jesus, supposedly, but he had made it impossible for them. He was teaching things that they didn't want to hear, teaching things that offended them, that embarrassed them. Now, we would do well to remember this when we think the only reason people don't come to Jesus is because we don't explain things well enough or use gentle enough language. Now, we should never try to be offensive. After all, the gospel is offensive enough as it is. Even Jesus offended with the gospel. There is no way that Jesus could be more gentle, more clear, and more kind. He is, after all, God himself. So what is it that they take offense at? Now, notice what Jesus is not saying throughout all of this chapter. Jesus is not giving a lecture on moral living. Now, people don't take offense. They don't object to basic morality. It's not offensive to the crowd to be anti-murder, anti-theft, or pro-parent. Now, think about it this way in terms of ethics. What about the fruit of the Spirit? Who is against patience, gentleness, kindness, love, and joy? That's not what they're offended at. In fact, Jesus actually, instead of trying to meet their worldly needs and give moral guidance, is pointing them away from their worldly needs. 
He told them, you should not focus on the bread that you eat that does not ultimately satisfy. What they are scandalized by is the heart of the gospel. Jesus had put it so starkly that they couldn't miss it. He said in verse 53, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then in verse 51, he says, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is what we call the substitutionary atonement. That is that Jesus died the death that we deserve. That he died in our place. That he bore the penalty and the punishment and the guilt of our sin. So that we could be forgiven. He was our substitute. You and I should have hung on that cross. You and I deserve hell. But Jesus went in our place. Jesus told them and us that he is the one who was given for the salvation of the world. And that unless you believe in him, remember we looked at that last week, that's what feeding on him is, believing on him, you will die. You can't pick and choose what you want about Jesus. You have to believe in him and his work. And Jesus wants to make it so clear, he actually doubles down in verse 62. He says, if you take offense at what I've said, <clears throat> what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you're scandalized now, what will you do when you see me dead, buried, and resurrected? That will be a great scandal. The gospel is not soft, sweet stories. It is powerful good news. It is not sentimental. It is a burst of light into a world of darkness. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Or are you offended by Jesus' words? Now, what is so offensive about the gospel here? First, Jesus says that no one can save themselves. Jesus has been saying this over and over again in this chapter. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, that you have to believe in me and then you will never thirst. And then he puts it as directly as he can here in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. Human effort is of no effect. Jesus is very emphatic. There are multiple negatives in there here. You cannot expect anything from the flesh. It's the spirit who gives life. Now this is what is most offensive. It says, I'm not in control. I can't earn my way to God. I can't do anything to save myself. And that is offensive to people. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. What the gospel says to every one of us is most galling to natural man. It seems to him to be completely insulting and humiliating 
because it does not come and tell us we only have to live a good life. If the news of the gospel was, be as good as you can, no one would be offended. But the gospel saying you cannot save yourself is offensive. It was especially offensive to the Jews. Because after all, the Jews prided themselves on being better than everyone else around them. They were better than the pagans. They didn't have the largest nation. They didn't have the most wealth. They didn't even rule themselves. But they had God's law. And they were the ones who obeyed God's law. And they were the ones who did what God wanted. And God smiled on them because of what they did. And others didn't do. But if you think about it, this is the chief offense in our day too. Just try and tell an American that their best efforts are worthless. That they could do nothing to be right with God. You may be sitting here today struggling with that. There's a part of you that wants to say, Pastor, I'm better than other people. I deserve more than others. I want to tell you, don't believe it. The gospel is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All need salvation by grace. It's not enough if you are slightly better than others around you. All have sinned and need the grace of God. The second aspect of the gospel that is offensive is that Jesus says, not only can you not save yourself, he is the only way of salvation. This is a worse scandal. There's only one way. Jesus tells us how the Spirit gives life here in verse 63. It is the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is not a way of salvation. He is not one of many ways to God. Jesus is the way of salvation. That's what's offensive. You see, the world wants you to believe that Jesus is just one of many ways. That takes away the offense. The world says there's no need for you to be exclusive about Jesus. Everyone can find their own way to God. Well, the problem with that is that it's a lie. Unless you believe on the Son, you will die in your sins. That is the only way. All other ways are rejected. That is your only hope. That is why God sent the Son to earth. Do you see how offensive it is to God? to reject Jesus as the only way. As if it was unnecessary for the Son to come and become man. As if it was unnecessary for Him to die on the cross. What does it say about the cross if you could come to God through the teachings of Muhammad alone? Or through meditation? Or through your own good works? It says that the cross is unnecessary that God is at best a fool and at worst a criminal. Well, we see the outcome of Jesus' teaching and the offense. Jesus explains to them that he had given them words of life and they had rejected them. We see this in verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe, Jesus says. Now, why would anyone reject life 
and choose death? The answer is that we are so lost in our sins that we cannot get past them. We don't want to give up on our own efforts. We don't want to believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That is our natural state. It's not that only the dumbest and most wicked people believe that. It's that everyone believes that. And there's only one way out. A work of sovereign grace. It's God's work of sovereign grace that takes words that are hard and turns them into words of life. Jesus is showing us here why the Father must draw sinners to the Son. Because if left to ourselves, we don't want the Son. We don't want grace. We don't want the salvation that God offers. If left to ourselves, we want what's coming to us. We want to earn what we've earned. So where does that leave us? Where can we find hope? These disciples, this broader group, the small D disciples, as opposed to the 12 big D disciples, had Jesus himself teaching them. And they were offended. And they left. This is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The phrase after this could also be translated because of this. Jesus had offered his disciples life. He had performed miracles in front of them. He had called them to rest in him and to get off the treadmill of their own works. And what is the result? Many leave. We don't know how many, but I think it's possible that all but the twelve left. This seems to be a colossal failure. Isn't Jesus supposed to be building the kingdom? Isn't the gospel supposed to succeed? But what we see here is Jesus is not bothered at all by the departure of the crowd. We would think that he would try to stop them. He would run after them, try to explain what's going on. Say, just hold on a minute here. Let me give you a little bit more information. Try to keep the momentum rolling. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he uses this departure as a test for the 12, the, the capital D disciples. He looks at them in verse 67 and he says, Do you want to go away as well? Now, there is an indicator in the original language about what type of question this is. There are three general categories of questions. There is a question that doesn't expect any kind of answer. It's open-ended. Then there's a question that expects a yes answer. Parents are familiar with this. You ask your children this question. You're going to clean your room, aren't you? The only correct answer is yes. You can't answer no to that. And then there's a third category in which the expected answer is no. And that's what we see here. We might paraphrase it this way. Jesus saying, surely you don't wish to go, do you? Jesus is not angry. 
that the crowd has departed. He's not worried about his ministry. He's asking this question for the disciples' sake. He wants them to answer for their own benefit. And so Peter, of course, answers. This is what we've come to expect, isn't it? Peter always leads out, has to be the first to answer for all of the disciples. Sometimes he even thinks before he answers. This is one of those occasions. And Peter is clear that he's answering for the whole group. He says, we, we think, we believe. To whom shall we go? You know, when you're with a group with Peter, unless you're really quick on the draw, you don't get to answer at all. Peter just draws you in. And that's what he's doing here. But Peter's answer here is good. It shows that he understands not everything that Jesus is saying, but he understands the main point that Jesus is making. Jesus has said that salvation only comes through him. He is the only way. And Peter says, to whom shall we go, Lord? That is, there's nowhere else to go. No one else has salvation. There's no other option. Why would we leave, Lord, when no one else has the words of eternal life? Peter gets it. Jesus' words are life. And only Jesus' words are life. So how could they possibly think of going someplace else? Do you see what Peter saw? Peter is not saying that Jesus' words are not hard. They are. But there is no place else to go. No one else has what Jesus has. No one else gives what Jesus gives. Are you looking around for answers other than Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you think your parents are all wet with this Jesus stuff. You think you need to broaden your horizons. Maybe you think there's really no need for you to be that extreme. Jesus only. Jesus is fine, but there are other ways out there. You don't want to limit your options. Peter is telling you that only Jesus has the words of life. Only Jesus has salvation. Your only hope is to believe in him. Then Peter goes on in verse 69. He says, we know who you are. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now it's interesting that both of these verbs, believed and come to know, are both perfect tense verbs. Now, what do I mean by that? That means they're past tense actions that have effect in the present. Because of what happened in the past, now in the present we are affected by it. He says, we've already believed, we already have known, and that's why we can't go away. And what is it that they know? They know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Now, this is not the most common title for Jesus. We become much more familiar with Jesus using the title, the Son of Man, for himself. We might even say the Son of God is a more common title in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the only other place that this title is used for Jesus, the Holy One of God, is by a demon in Mark chapter 1. 
but I think it's intentional. Peter may have recalled that incident that Mark records. But it's intentional because Jesus is the Holy One who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one who has the authority to do God's will. That's what Jesus has been saying all along, and Peter agrees. Now I want you to notice the order of Peter's statement. He says, we have believed and have come to know. That's the opposite of the way the world approaches Jesus. The world wants to know first and then believe. That's the problem with the crowd. They were unwilling to believe. But the Bible tells us that it is by believing that we come to know. If you believe in Jesus, then you know more and more about him. Hebrews 11 puts it this way. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. How do you know that there's a Creator? Well, because you believe God's Word. God has told us He's a Creator, and therefore we believe, and therefore we know. And then we can observe. We can observe all of the order in creation. We can observe all that speaks of a Creator because we have believed, and then we know. But here, Jesus also reminds Peter that Jesus is sovereign in verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Now, Peter had a good answer. We can agree on that. But I think there's a little piece of pride in Peter's response. The way he says it, he emphasizes the very first word is we. It's the sense in which Peter's saying, Lord, we believed. We know. We're not like these dummies in the crowd. We're with you. We believe. We know. We got your back. We're following you. So Jesus reminds Peter and us that Peter's faith didn't originate with him. Jesus chose him. Now, of course, this is perfectly in line with what Jesus has been saying throughout all of the chapter. In verse 37, he said, All that the Father gives me are the ones who will come to me. In verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And in case you missed that, He repeats it again in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father, unless it is granted by the Father. So here is a reminder to you not to be proud. Some people think Reformed theology makes you arrogant. That you're special because you know the theology. You know it better than others. Now, there are some arrogant Reformed people. I won't deny that. But Jesus' statement here should humble us. You see, we bring nothing that God requires to save us. We don't even bring our faith. That's a gift of God. So be humble, but also be hopeful. 
Because that also means that you can't do anything to mess up your salvation. All who truly believe in Jesus have been drawn by the Father and are chosen by the Son. God in His sovereignty in salvation from beginning to end. Now there's a warning here. Jesus chose the twelve. But one of them is a devil. Judas is an example of not trusting in appearances. Just because you say you believe in Jesus does not mean that you do. God sees the heart. You may be able to fool your pastor. You may be able to fool your parents. You may be able to fool your spouse. But doing religious things does not save. Remember that Judas traveled with Jesus. That Judas heard Jesus. That Judas saw Jesus. And yet his heart was unchanged. A.W. Pink puts it this way. A man may witness the most stupendous marvels, may hear the most spiritual teaching, may company with the most godly characters, and yet himself never be born again. This is a warning to us to do heart work. But you should not lose heart. Jesus asks you, do you want to go away as well? The world around you rejects Jesus. It will not have an exclusive Savior who does not reward them for what they think they have done. But you can stay close to Jesus. You can believe in Him. Because who else has the words of eternal life? Let's pray.